How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will the enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Please be seated. I want to remind you as we walk through the, uh, as we walk through the uh, series on suffering that I think it's so important for us to compare worldviews to really think through what, is, what do different people say about suffering because uh, suffering is um, common to all humanity. And so no matter where you are spiritually, We've got to deal with the issue of suffering. So let me give you a, an example before I set up Psalm 13. So uh, Richard Dawkins wrote a book, A Darwinian View of Life. Or a Darwinian View of Life. So listen to what he says about suffering. And I think this is really true according, according to Darwinian theory. In, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it or any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now, that would be a secular humanist view of suffering i.e., there is no evil, there's no purpose, there's no good. Now, I'd simply just pose to you, no matter where you are in, in, on a spiritual journey, is that satisfying to you? Does that ring true with your experience? I would say, just right up front, that does not ring true with my experience. That I believe that there is evil. And so, this worldview does not do a whole lot for me. I read a... a um, a blog last, uh, actually a couple of days ago, by a woman named Caroline de, de Agati. I think I've got that right. Anyway, she was talking about Kate Spade's suicide and also uh, Tony uh, uh, Bodain. Uh, Good, thank you. <laughs> I forgot to practice it. Anyway, um, she was talking about those two suicides. And listen to what she said. She said, in one sense, I agree with Kate and Tony. They were right to be brokenhearted. Uh, this is a broken world that neither they nor you nor I will ever be able to set right. Doesn't that make, it, it, doesn't that ring true? As Kate Spade or Anthony or Robin Williams and so many other inter entertainers show, even giving joy to others in the end is not enough. So in the end, why bother? How can we not be defeated when we set our eyes on the brokenness of this world? In other words, if this world is all there is, 
if this world is as good as it gets, think about where that leaves us. This world is as good as it gets. Then she goes on to say, the writer C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So she is a Christian, and she would say that the Christian worldview of suffering, she has found to be the most satisfying. She goes on to say, if we believe this life is all there is, the darkness will blind us to the majesty and beauty of life. Suicide is tragic. But reasonable response to being confronted by life's reality with no salve of deeper meaning to bandage the wound. This is why a life without God, no matter how grand, will always leave our hearts unfulfilled. What she's appealing to is this thought, because the Bible teaches that we're created by God, we're also created for God. You were, if you were created by God, you were actually created for an intimate relationship with the living God. And to try to find life apart from the one who created you for him will lead you ultimately to futility. And that's her whole point. She goes on to say, when she talks about suicide, suicide is tragic. Please take your medications. Talk to your family. Go get treatment. Your life is precious to God and people around you. But it's worth fighting for. No matter what help those things bring, our heart's only true peace our, our, our heart will only find true peace when we live for the one who's created us. And I think she's right on target. Ultimately, our heart will only find peace in the one who made our hearts for And that's the Christian worldview. Now, let's walk through this passage in Psalm 13, Suffering. Now, the way I want to walk through it, let me illustrate it for you. About four or five years ago, you guys, I ended up walking the Grand Canyon. And it's basically a long, a long hike. And so we started from the north rim. We went down to the bottom. And then we went up the south rim. Okay? And so what's very interesting is when you start down, you realize it's, you're just going down. And it is really, really intense. And you reach the bottom. And you're absolutely exhausted. And it's almost a despair because you end up sleeping on the ground at the bottom. And I'm too old to sleep on the ground. You sleep on the ground, and you realize you've got such a long way to go up. But then you, keep, you go up, and as you, uh, the third day, you, you begin to scale the wall, the canyon on the south wall. You really begin to have a hope, and you ultimately reach the south rim, and you look back, and you see how beautiful the canyon is. And that's exactly what's happening in Psalm 13. Verses 1 and 2 are about deep despair. 3 and 4, when he's at the bottom, and he really has a desperate plea. And then 5 and 6 is his exercise of faith and what he experiences as the comfort God gives him as he's walking through suffering. So let's walk through it together. Look at verses 1 through 2, uh, 1 and 2 first, okay? Y'all hang on just a second. I'm going to start my clock. Good. Okay, good. I want want to make sure we get out of here on time. So look at verses 1 and 2. Notice what he says here. How long, Lord? How long? How long, Lord? How long? He says, how long, four times. Now, what does that give you an indication of? Guess what? He doesn't like suffering. Anybody in here, Mascus? See, he acknowledges, and this is one of the things that I loved about the Bible, is it's so real. You have a man who's walking through a very difficult situation, and he's saying, Lord, where are you? Why aren't you showing up? Now, look at how he does this, the first how long. He says, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? In other words, 
we've been intimate friends, and now it feels like you've turned your back on me. Look at the second how long. He says, Lord, how long you, will you hide your face from me? In other words, he's saying, God, I thought I was pleasing to you. Many times in the Older Testament, you'll hear what you see in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. In other words, if the Lord's face is, is shining on you or facing you, it's, you're enjoying the prosperity of the Lord, the favor of the Lord. And what this man David, who actually wrote this psalm, is feeling is that God has turned his face away from David. And so he's in despair, and he's saying, Lord, I thought I was pleasing to you. I thought we had an intimate relationship. Look at the third, how long? He says this, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? And what he's saying there is suffering, and especially prolonged suffering, will ultimately penetrate every fiber of your being and go to the core of your heart to bring real darkness. And those of you in the room... In, in the room now who are walking through suffering, you know, especially if it's been an extended time of suffering, you're not sure when it's going to end. You know that it just penetrates to the core of your being. And David's saying here, he's turning over this suffering that he's going through in his own mind. He's really wrestling with it. He's really grappling with it, if you will. It's because it's penetrated his entire life. And look at the fourth how long. How long will my enemies triumph over me? This is a reference to the particular, uh, one of the particular circumstances of this psalm. David, on a number of occasions, was actually, uh, he, he was actually attacked. His son rebelled against him. Absalom rebelled against him. And in a number of areas, people opposed him. And so he's particularly saying here, Lord, how long will my enemies oppose me? In other words, how long will this rejection go on? And I, I really appreciate these two verses because he is expressing the authenticity of the difficulty of suffering. We just don't know sometimes when it's going to end. And if you're in the midst of suffering and you're not sure when it's going to end, I want you to listen carefully how, he, how, how David grapples with this. So what do we do with this idea of suffering and not knowing exactly when it's going to end? Well, the, the principle that the Bible teaches is this. God has not abandoned you in his suffering. But as I've found in a number of times in my own life, God's timetable is not necessarily my timetable. God's timetable is not necessarily your timetable. In other words... If God's doing something larger and working behind our sufferings for a larger purpose, then God knows. And he will come through in his own time. It's essential to see that God will come through in his own time. Now, David clearly does not understand that in the sense that he's grappling with it. And he, here, wants God to come through and thinks it's perfectly reasonable that God, that his request, he thinks his request is, per, uh, is perfectly reasonable. And so he cries out, Lord, how long? Why is this continuing to go on? And he does not understand. But I can tell you this about suffering 
Many times, you and I, in the immediate, won't understand all the circumstances of the suffering we're going through. But what God promises is that he will not waste a moment of your suffering. And he will never be late in the midst of it. Now look at verses 3 and 4. This is David's desperate plea. Look on me, answer, Lord my God. Now a couple of things here I want you to see. In this desperate plea, and another thing I appreciate about this psalm, is David is really raw with his words. And I think that's, this is important to see because some people want to, uh, they feel like they've got to almost get religious with their suffering and not really question God. Well, I can tell you this. David has no problem approaching God with the authentic cry of his heart. Maybe you know the difference. Let me illustrate briefly. Maybe you know the difference between uh, white sugar and sugar in the raw. I did not know the difference in this. So certainly um, sugar in the raw is less processed. But the reason it's a darker color is because sugar in the raw has some molasses in it. And if you process it more, it becomes white sugar and all the molasses is processed out of it. So if you put enough sugar in the raw in your coffee over at Starbucks, say 10 packs, you, you can taste the caramel because the, the molasses there tastes like caramel. And so it's tasty. And so I say that to say this, this prayer is, if you will, it's got, it's got real heart. David's got real heart here. It's raw. He's being very straightforward with the living God. And I want to tell you something. Listen to me carefully. You can maintain a reverent awe for God and be honest with him. He does not fault you for the way you feel. Do you hear me? He does not fault you for the way you feel. And what you need to see here is that David's being perfectly honest with the Lord. And let me say it again. He's being perfectly honest. He's not talking behind the Lord's back. He's saying it straight to his face. And so can you. Look. Look on me and answer. In other words, you've turned your face away from me. Look on me and answer. Do you see my circumstances? And in essence, what, you know what David's saying is, if you really saw my circumstances, you'd do something about them. That's essentially what he's saying. And he's not, he's not being disrespectful. He's being very honest. He's saying, Lord, my requests are per perfectly reasonable. Now, in other words, come through. Notice he says, answer. He's saying, hear me and do something about it. I don't know if you've ever felt like this, but have you ever felt like when you're walking through a valley that, that God goes what I call radio silent? You ever, have you ever felt like the, the, the Lord has gone radio silent on you? You know, you're calling out to him and there's nothing there. It reminded me of, remember Apollo 13? There was an oxygen tank on board the command module, and it blew up, and so they weren't able to land on the moon, so they had to come uh, around the moon and back to the earth. And there was a, a dicey uh, a point in their reentry. They had to reenter the atmosphere with, this, uh, with the uh, command module, except, uh, the, the equipment compromised, and so they weren't sure if they were going to survive. And so when they came into the atmosphere, 
there was a time where the ionized gas around the command module would prohibit radio contact. In other words, there would be a radio silence. What they didn't cal calculate is this. Because the, the, um, the spaceship was um, damaged, they had to come in at a much, uh, uh, much less sharp angle. It, uh, they, normally they come in like this, but they came in like this, and so consequently it took them a longer time to get through the atmosphere where they forgot to figure it. And what should have been four and a half minutes in radio silence turned out to be almost uh, six minutes. And as Gene Krantz, the, um, the uh, chief officer, said, it was the longest minute and 27 seconds they've ever had of radio silence. They thought they'd lost them. And I don't know if you've ever felt like that with the Lord, that he's gone radio silent on you. But I can tell you this. Listen carefully to me. Even when God is silent, he is still working. Even... When God is silent, he is still working. And I think it's perfectly appropriate as we see here, look, Lord, answer me. Oh, Lord, he goes on to say, give light to my eyes. Now, that literally means this, it's the, an, an, the idea of, Lord, help me to see your love and your grace. Help me to see what you're doing in the midst of my suffering. Help me to see that you're a God who's faithful and will not waste a moment of my suffering. Help me to see that you are God who is good, even though my circumstances are not good. Because so many of us, myself included, tend to think that God is good when my circumstances are good and God may not be so good when they're not. And that is not true. God's goodness never changes. And even when my circumstances are not good or I'm walking through that valley, God is good in the midst of it and will ultimately do good things for it, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He will not waste a moment of your suffering. And so David says here, give light to my eyes. And how will he give light to our eyes? You know how he'll do it? The first thing he'll do is to help take our eyes off of our immediate suffering and begin to look at the God who's behind it and who can actually do something with it and ultimately will end it. And I don't want to be, I don't mean for one second to be disrespectful of anybody in the room who's walked through suffering. I myself have walked through deep suffering. But it's so important to not let your suffering be your complete perspective. Because there's a God who's larger than that suffering. He's in the midst of the suffering with you. And I'll tell you something. You guys, I get paid professionally to walk through suffering with people. And I've seen some horrendous stuff. And sometimes, it, you know, there's not an explanation, at least I've not seen in this life. But even when I don't understand the immediate suffering, I have seen the promise that God can bring some ultimate good from something terribly bad. 
can bring some ultimate good from something terribly bad. He can redeem it. And he promises surely to end it. And so David says here, answer me, give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. In other words, if God doesn't come through, he's toast. He's saying, God, I've got nothing but you. I remember one time where Jesus was going through a particularly difficult time, and he looked at his close followers, and he said to them, hey, are you guys going to leave me too? You know what Peter said to him? Lord, you've got the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? You know what Peter was saying to him then? He was saying, it's difficult now, but we really believe that you are good and you're going to bring something better. I don't know what else to tell you about suffering. But I can tell you that Richard Dawkins is wrong because there is evil and there is good. And there is purpose. And there is a God who's good. He goes on to say, look at verses, uh, look at verses, uh, he goes on to say, uh, my enemy will say, I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice. And what you need to simply say there, uh, see there is David saying, don't let, don't let my enemies gloat over me. In other words, give me the grace to go through my suffering does not dishonor you. And it's not dishonoring God to question God. How long? Don't turn your face away from me. Look at me and answer. Those are not things that are dishonoring to the living God. Those are authentic things. So when David says, here, give light to my eyes so that my enemies will not gloat over me, he's simply saying, Lord, give me the grace to walk through the suffering in a way where I trust you through it because you will be faithful to me. Men and women, I want you to listen to me carefully. Those of you in the room who are followers of Christ, our greatest, one of our greatest witnesses in the next 50 years in this country is going to be how we go through suffering. It really is. How we go through persecution. Will we really love our enemies? Will we really bless those who persecute us? The only way we could ever walk through suffering with that sort of grace is to ask God for it. And that's what David's doing. He's saying, give me grace to go through this suffering. Now look at five and six. You know, I'll never forget when we were walking up the canyon wall, I was absolutely beside myself as we were going to the south rim. Uh, now, I'm 150 pounds. I was carrying a 50-pound pack. This is ridiculous. And I paid good money to carry that pack, you know? But, you, you know, you're glad to carry it because it's your survival. It's your food. It's your water. It's everything you need. So I'm strapped up. And I looked up at the canyon wall, 
And I'm like, gosh, you guys, I swear, it was, it's, it, see that wall over there? It was, it was like that. And it was so far away, you couldn't see the switch back of the trail, which by the trail, the trail was about this wide. And the drop was about uh, 500 feet. So you can imagine. I mean, it was just terrifying. But I want to tell you, you know what David's doing here in 5 and 6? He's walking up the wall. And when I say walking up the wall, you know what he's decided? He's decided, I'm going to stake everything on God. I'm going to place my faith in God. I'm going to trust him, even when I don't understand. And look how he does this. Look, but I trust in your unfailing love. What's he saying there? The, the uh, I trust in the Hebrew, you guys, is an emphatic. In other words, it's an act of faith. Now, I want to tell you, I want to talk to you about something. We're a culture that our reality, we're really a culture where our reality is determined by our feelings. So somebody might say to you, well, how do you feel about this? Well, that's really not a great question to ask. It's much better to say, what do you believe about this? Not how do you feel about it. Because remember, your circumstances can manipulate your emotions. The latest video or the latest song can manipulate the way you feel about something. And so when David says, but I trust He's talking about an act of faith, not a welling up of emotions. Dallas Willard said this about emotions. Listen to what he said. A great part of the disaster of contemporary life lies in the fact that it is organized around feelings. People nearly always act on their feelings and think it only right. The will is then left, the will, our, vo our volitional will, is then left at the mercy of circumstances that evoke feelings. Christian spiritual formation today must squarely confront this fact and overcome it. How do we overcome it? Do you know how we overcome it? We understand that the Christian faith is a walk of faith. In other words, no matter how I feel, although my feelings are not unimportant, how you feel matters to God. It really does. We wouldn't have the Psalms if, it, if your feelings didn't matter. But God does not want you to base your understanding of him on how you feel. But rather, who he is and how he reveals himself to you. How he reveals himself. And so when David says here, I trust, what's he saying? In your unfailing love not how I feel. He's saying that I'm not organizing my life around my emotions. I'm resting my life in who you are and your unfailing love. And so what you see here is faith in God is very definitely an act of the will to trust him. It's an act of the will. And so when Paul says love never fails, what he's saying is this, is when you trust yourself to the living God, God himself, who is love, will never fail you. He will never fail you, no matter how we feel. Now again, not to invalidate your emotions, but your emotions are not the foundation of the reality of who God is and how God will come through for us. And so David says, 
I will trust you. I will trust. I will look to you. I know, Lord, that you will come through, not based on how I feel. Notice how he says here, my, reju- my heart rejoices in your salvation. What's he saying there? He's simply saying, in God's unfailing love, God has saved. So how do we know that God will come through in the face of our immediate suffering? How do we know that? Well, we've got to look back at who God is and what God has done. Because if you're ever going to understand what God is doing in the midst of your suffering or what you can ask God to do with you and through you and in you in your suffering, you've got to see a God who's been faithful in the past and what he has done. And so the ultimate, the ultimate um, place to place your faith in what God has done in giving us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that so important? Well, let me tell you why. When you look at the Lord himself, what you see in the gift of his son Jesus, when he sent his son Jesus, Jesus was the most valuable thing that God the Father had. And God the Father gave up his only son because he loved us as much as he loved his own son. Let me say it again. Take a breath. All quiet. God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. That's why he sent Christ. He sent the one he loved to save the one he loved. And so if you want to know how valuable you are, regardless of how you feel in your current circumstances, you, know, you must look at the price tag he paid to have you. And there's the price tag. Let me tell you why it's so important to look at that price tag. Because Jesus suffered. He knows how you feel. And he suffered on the cross so you don't have to suffer forever. He gave his life so that you could have life and a life without suffering. Because suffering is not the way it's supposed to be. But in order to make wrong right, he had to pay the debt. He had to suffer. And so David placed his faith in a God who saves. And he knows God saves. And he knows God will save him from this suffering too. And men and women, I want to tell you, I don't know what kind of suffering you're going through. And I've been... I know in a congregation this size, there's a lot of suffering in the room, but what I can tell you is, if you look to the Lord Jesus, he will ultimately deliver you from that suffering. He will, really will. And just as important, he's not waiting for you at the end of the road. 
He'll walk the road with you. He'll comfort you in the middle of it. He may not explain it. At least not in the immediate. But he'll be present in the midst of it. He promised. And so you know what happens. As you see right at the very end here. You see... I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. What you see is, David, the song of his heart is not suffering. It's not a song of despair. It's a song of something larger. It's a song of the love of God who will not abandon him. The song of one who will walk through the darkness even when he, David, doesn't know when it's going to end. It's the song of one who trusts that ultimately God will not waste a moment of his suffering. And so, as the writer said, when you, in your life, come to the end of all the light you know, and it's time for you to step into the darkness of the unknown, and you're not sure, and you step into the darkness of 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 the unknown, trusting God, and trusting that he'll not waste your suffering. Faith. Faith in God is knowing that one of two things will happen for you. Either you will be given something solid to stand on, or you will be taught to fly. Let's pray.